Uh, real quick before I begin the sermon. Uh, remember the things that Pastor Steve prays for. He, he's truly praying. He's also instructing us by example how to pray and by extension reminding us what to pray for. A long prayer means that there are many, many needs in our congregation. Please do not forget one another. Please do not forget one another. But with that said, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, this morning we'll be considering Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So we're going to be looking at a couple of different passages here in Genesis 2 and 3. We're beginning a three-week Advent series as we meditate on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we will begin at the beginning. Um, I believe that to appreciate the, the first advent or first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must first appreciate our need of a Savior. Uh, until we understand our need for him, the birth of Jesus is simply not that exciting. Like what makes him different? Until we understand our need, it's, it's not that exciting. We must first understand the ruin of man through sin before we can behold the glory of our Redeemer and truly celebrate his taking on flesh and coming to save us. Before we can celebrate the good news of a Savior born unto us, we must first understand the bad news of the fall of man. And therefore, uh, Christmas, or the incarnation of Christ, points us back to the beginning where the story of man and his misery began. Our Lord Jesus came into the world with a purpose. As the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. And this means that Christmas must remind us first that we are sinners in Adam and need saving by Christ. Now our text this morning in Genesis 3.15, it ends with what many call the proto-evangelion. There's your $5 word. That means the first gospel. The first gospel. The first declaration of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of good news to sinners. It is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and I hope after this morning it will be yours. It's the first message of the Redeemer who would one day come to save God's people from their sins. To the serpent, the devil, God said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. At Christmas, we are celebrating the birth of the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ. And by the way, that is one of my favorite nicknames for our Lord. He is the serpent crusher. We're celebrating the birth of the Savior, born of a woman, who has come to save us from sin and the wrath of God that we have put ourselves under in Adam. Christmas reminds us of the wickedness of sin the fallenness of man, and the grace of God given to us in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who has come and crushed the head of the serpent and freed us from our sin, shame, and damnation by bearing the curse of God on our behalf. At Christmas, we are celebrating the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the promised seed. May God bless us this morning as we turn to his word. So now, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, and get excited. This is good news. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man 
and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Fast forward to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit uh, fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. There is glory wisdom, and truth for us to behold in your word. So God, please grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe, and hands to obey your word. Help us to hear your voice in the scriptures this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Grant us a sight of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might lay hold of him by faith once again. And if there are any unconverted among us, that they may lay hold of him by faith for the first time. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. We begin by considering the time before the fall. God had created all things in the span of six days, and all was very good. And he's created man on the sixth day, and given man dominion over the entire created world. Everything belonged to Adam under God. 
Adam could do as he pleased. He was provided for in the Garden of Eden, living in perfection and perfect communion with God every single day, with, with no pain, no suffering, again, all perfection, all of his needs met. And at some point after Adam's creation, God came to him and made a covenant with him. And this is what we read about in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. This is why I wanted to start here. God instituted what we in theology call the covenant of works here in Genesis chapter 2. Now, the Bible does not here explicitly call it a covenant, although in Hosea there is a reference to the covenant God made with Adam. But all the features of a covenant are definitely present. And I don't care about the word. I want to know is the thing there. So verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What do we see here? Again, we see a covenant. God sovereignly imposed terms upon the man. God commanded Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God threatened Adam with punishment should he breach the terms. Should he be disobedient, you will surely die. This is how covenants work. There are stipulations and there are threats. This is how covenant is. And also, where there are threats, blessings are implied. If Adam perpetually and perfectly obeyed the command of God, Adam would never die. So here we see that God imposed an agreement or covenant between himself and Adam. Also, God does not ask for permission. He imposes covenants on his creatures. They don't have a choice in the matter. He says, you have a covenant with me now. I'm higher than you. I get to set what's happening now. And this covenant, again, if Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will die. He will be cursed by God. But if he obeys... God will bless him with eternal life. In summary, God has said, obey me and live. Disobey me and die. This is the covenant of works. Adam will gain the blessing of eternal life by, again, perpetual, perfect obedience to God. A blessing is promised by God if Adam's works, his obedience is perfect. Eternal life promised for perfect works. And know this. I won't get into it right now, but we see this in Romans 5. We will get there later. Adam represented all mankind in this covenant. This covenant was bigger than Adam. Read the Bible. God will choose someone to represent a covenant on behalf of a great number of people. He did it with Noah. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. He does it with Christ. There's a covenant representative that represents others. And God chose him to be the covenant representative or learn this term, federal head, the federal head of the covenant of works. Federal just means covenant, head means representative. So Adam represented all who would come from him, all who would come from him. That is, he represented mankind. He is our first father. He represented us in this covenant with God. So if Adam keeps covenant with God, he, and to use some biblical language, he and all who are in him, that is, his posterity, mankind, will receive eternal life. Now, it's good to note here that God did not have to make this covenant with Adam. God was actually 
very kind to make this covenant with Adam. Sometimes we view the covenant of works as kind of a bad and harsh thing, but it's only because Adam broke it, as we read in Genesis 3. This is actually very kind. Adam, consider this, he was already morally obligated to do whatever God commanded him. God is God. Adam is his creation. But God voluntarily and graciously condescended to add a conditional blessing for obedience. God did not have to promise Adam eternal life. Adam, though created innocent and righteous, was not sealed in righteousness. Right? There was a possibility that he could sin. But if he perpetually and perfectly obeyed God during this time of probation, God would seal him in righteousness and he would live forever righteously. Adam and his posterity would never die if Adam keeps covenant with God. But God also threatened Adam, in the day you eat, you shall die. You shall surely die. Now this phrase uh, expressed the certainty of the fact that Adam would die. It does not express the immediacy of that death in all of its forms. And we know that because Adam did eat and did not immediately physically die. Again, let scripture interpret scripture. God was gracious to him and delayed his punishment. He gave him a stay of execution. So we should understand this phrase to say something like this. If you eat, know for a certainty death will come upon you. Write it down, Adam. It will certainly happen. And in this threat of death, I believe that there was a threefold death threatened to Adam, and I deduce this from all the ways that we are dead in him. First, there's spiritual death threatened. Adam and his posterity would become sinners. Adam and all whom he represented would experience separation from God. Adam and all whom he represented would come under the guilt and power of sin and be rendered spiritually dead in Adam's sin and trespasses. Second, temporal death is threatened here. Adam would physically die someday. The moment that Adam broke this covenant, he would begin the process of decay and death, slowly but surely. I remember my grandfather used to tell me when I was a young man, from the moment you are born, you begin to die. By the way, talk to your children this way. It's good for them. It's good for them. He began this process the moment that he Sin. And all who would come from him would have to suffer this same fate of temporal death. Third, there is eternal death threatened here. Adam and his descendants would become liable to the second death, the eternal wrath of God, damnation, eternal separation from the blessings of God would hang over Adam and all his posterity if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, God threatened death for disobedience, and it was a terrifying threat that was meant to be taken seriously. If Adam breaks covenant, everything will fall apart, and the world and mankind will be plunged into misery and ruin. Now, a question comes up here that I've asked, I'm sure some of you have. Why the tree? Why the prohibition of eating a certain fruit? I'm not exactly sure. No one really is. This is, uh, this is what theologians call a positive commandment. Tune in here. This will be important, especially when we get into the Sabbath in January. This is what theologians call a positive commandment. That is, there was nothing intrinsically moral 
about not eating from that tree. One tree is not more moral than another tree. After all, God gave every other tree for Adam to eat from. But positive command means that God sovereignly chose to give a commandment. God sovereignly chose. And once the command was given, it became morally binding because God gave it. God had put Adam on a probation of sorts, a test, and Adam must obey. Hear me. God is God, and so God gave a command that was to be obeyed by his creature, Adam. God had given Adam dominion over all things, but by issuing this one command and imposing a covenant on Adam, God was actually asserting his rule over Adam. Hey, Adam, you have dominion over everything but me. That's what the Lord's saying here with this command. And now Adam's job as God's creation was to recognize his place under God and in faith submit to God and obey him in love. You could say that this covenant was a test of obedience and faith. Obedience, recognizing that God is God and I must obey. And a test of faith that Adam would trust that God knows best and is wiser than man to forbid this tree. Brothers and sisters, everything rides on Adam's obedience. Everything. Everything rides on the federal head. Everything rides on the covenant representative. Everything rides on Adam's keeping the covenant. Eternal life or eternal death, that is what is at stake. Perfection with God forever or death and separation from God's blessing. And it all depends on Adam's obedience to God. And now the scene changes. God has created the woman toward the end of chapter 2. He's created Eve, given her to Adam as his wife. The first marriage has taken place. And apparently, we deduce from chapter 3, Adam, as the representative of the covenant, has actually acted as a prophet by the way, Adam was prophet, priest, and king of the world in the beginning. Think about that and the connections. He acted as a prophet. Why? Well, he heard from God what this covenant was, and so he delivers the covenant to his wife verbally. That's a prophet. And he tells Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how they are not to eat of it under pain of death. Quick note here. Eve would die too if she ate. God's command and threat applied equally to both of them. But... Her disobedience could not condemn mankind. Adam is the federal head, not Eve. Remember that. And now we come to the tempter and his tempting in the Garden of Eden. Now it's good to note at this point, the word of God doesn't tell us the hows or whys that we would like to know. Right? It simply tells us the what's. It's something you'll find out the more you read the Bible. God is more often uh, interested in telling you what went on than why or how it went on. There are questions that Genesis 3 raises uh, about Satan and his fall from heaven, the possession of a snake, why God would foreordain these things, how, this is the one for me, how does sinless man with no sinful nature come to sin, and many other things. But we aren't going to worry about those things today. We can worry about them another day. We will simply focus on what happened in the garden and rest knowing that God has foreordained all things for his glory and the good of his people. 
What happened is our chief concern. Why? Because it has to do with every single one of us and the miserable situation that mankind finds itself in. Genesis 3.1 begins by saying, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This serpent is Satan. This serpent is the devil. Genesis doesn't say it outright, but you can piece it together from the rest of the word of God. Revelation 12.9 and Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 both refer to Satan as the ancient serpent. Apparently Satan, the great enemy of God, a fallen angel, the hater of all that is good, a wicked spiritual being, the father of lies, has possessed a serpent in the garden. God has permitted him to do so. And through this serpent, Satan begins to speak to the woman Eve. And he begins to tempt her to disobey the command of the Lord. Let me read verses 1 through 5. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan tempted our first mother, Eve. Let's consider how he tempted her. For his ways have not changed. They are effective still. As the saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So let's briefly consider how he tempted Eve so that we might be on guard against his lies. First, Satan questioned the word of God. Did God actually say? Satan questioned the word of God to Eve, and in doing so, tempted her to question what God had said. That, that, this is incredibly crafty and smart. Re remember this. Like, it's, it's evil, but it's smart. Satan is not stupid. He is wicked. Remember that. Satan's not stupid. You, he's smarter than you. He's just wicked. But, but hath God said, did God really say, this is the beginning of temptation? This is the road to sin. Did God really say? And this is what Satan tempts all of us to ask in our hearts, is it not? Did God really say? Did God really say that Christ is the only way of salvation? Isn't that kind of narrow? Did God really say that I must forgive those who hurt me and refuse to take revenge? Did God really say that sexual activity is to be bound in the context of marriage between one man and one woman? That seems a bit restrictive. Did God really say that his word is without error and infallible? Did God really say that I will have to suffer for his sake and deny myself in this world? That seems too hard. Satan tempts us to question the word of God. He tempts us to question what God has plainly said. And in doing so, what is he tempting us to do? to question the authority of God himself. Christian, be on guard. Look always to the word and submit yourself to God's authority. Second, Satan twisted the word of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God did not say that. Eve affirms as much. No, that's not what he said. But this is what Satan does. He twists the word of God until God no longer seems wise or, or what he actually said is lost in a cloud of confusion or God seems unreasonable 
And in doing so, he tempts us to believe that God is unreasonable and his word is not good. Again, Satan twists the scriptures, adding to it, taking from it, putting words into God's holy mouth. So Christian, let me encourage you, stick tightly to the text. Paraphrases won't do. Stick tightly to the text. Commit yourself to knowing what God has truly said. And by the way, uh, don't misunderstand me. This is not uh, about the Bible as a, as a book. It's about what has God said. This is about believing God, knowing what he said. The book is just the vehicle that we know what he has said. Third, Satan called God a liar. This should make your blood boil. You will not surely die. That is a lie. Satan blatantly contradicts God. He tells Eve that God will not do what God explicitly said that he would do. He minimizes, really completely discounts the threat of punishment that God gave. And he continues to do this today. He tells us God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Or he tells us God won't discipline you for your sin. He tempts us to believe that we can disobey God with no fear of retribution or discipline or pain whatsoever. He tells us that God, check this, God doesn't really mean what he said. And this goes further than threats of punishment, by the way. Satan is in the business of getting us to call God a liar. That's, that's the goal. He wants us to flatly reject what God has plainly said, whether that be with regard to promises of blessing, salvation, help, and grace, or with threats of punishment and discipline. He contradicts God and tempts us to disbelieve our creator. The fourth aspect of this temptation, Satan called God's goodness into question. I had never considered this much until this past week. I knew he called God a liar. I never thought about he called God's character into question. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan basically says, God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because he wants to withhold something good from you. He doesn't want you to be as good as he is. That's why he told you not to eat. Satan casts a shadow on the goodness and kindness of God. He lies about God's character. He tempts us to believe that God is arbitrary and gives commandments that are not for our good. He tempts us to believe that God does not care about us and does not want what is best for us. He tempts us to believe uh, that God is withholding good things from us and doesn't want us to flourish. In summary, he tempts us to believe that God is not good and does not love us. And then lastly, Satan lied and declared that disobeying God will benefit the sinner. You will become like God, knowing good from evil. Satan tells Eve that if she disobeys, if she will sin against God and break his commandment, there will be great gain for her. You'll be like God. You'll know the, the difference between good and evil. You'll have this knowledge. He's already called God's goodness into question. It's not a far leap to then tempt her to believe that listening to, to him, Satan, instead of God, will benefit her in some way. This is the one that we fall prey to, I think, maybe more than anything. Oh, I won't call God a liar, but somehow I'll have this cognitive dissonance where I think that disobeying the good God, who is truth, will benefit me. Satan tells us that there is lasting pleasure in sin. He tells us that disobeying God is the way to get ahead. 
He tells us that refusing to listen to God will be good for us because God doesn't know what he's talking about, apparently. Brothers and sisters, Satan's temptations remain basically the same in all ages. These, these five things are in, his, are in his toolbox, and he just uses them over and over and over again in different ways because he's crafty. He uses the same playbook throughout the centuries. He's a liar who challenges the word of God at every point. He is a liar who calls into question the character and goodness of God. He is a liar who tells us that disobeying God will benefit us. He is a liar who calls God a liar. He is a liar who deceives us into leaving our station below God to attempt to usurp his authority. Truly, as Jesus says, he is a liar and the father of lies. Resist him. Oh, Christian, resist him. Resist him. If you question God's word, twist God's word, disbelieve God's word, question God's character and believe that sin will benefit you, you will sin. If you believe that the shallow lies of Satan, you will rebel against your maker. Christian, resist him. As James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you do that? Cling to what God has said. Cling to the knowledge that God is good. Cling to the authority of God over you. Humble yourself before the Lord and remain faithful to him. Cry out to him to help you. Resist the devil and he will flee. Remember, he is a liar and seeks your destruction. Every time that you're tempted to sin, I want you to remember what I'm getting ready to tell you happened because Adam listened to the devil. Remember what Satan is after when you're tempted and resist him. Adam and Eve should have resisted the devil. Adam especially, who was charged with keeping the Garden of Eden, should have cast the serpent out right then and there. Verse... Genesis 2.15, God told him to keep the garden. And that word in Hebrew can have the connotation of guard it. Guard it. What should Adam have done? He should have done some pest control. That's what he should have done. When he saw the serpent speaking to his wife and heard the blasphemy coming out of his mouth, he should have crushed the head of that serpent right then. But that is not what happened. And so we come to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve ate first, and she condemned herself. But her eating did not ruin mankind. Adam was the federal head not Eve. So in this moment that her teeth sink into this fruit, there is still a glimmer of hope for mankind. There's still a glimmer of hope. But that hope was gone almost immediately. Adam apparently was with her. She eats and gives it to her husband, and he eats. Catch this. The Bible tells us Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate. That's what Paul says to Timothy. But you know who's never said to have been deceived? Adam. Adam wasn't deceived. He just ate. He just ate. Everything was riding on Adam's keeping the covenant. And he fails. 
Adam rebelled against the Lord. Oh, please hear me. Unbelievers trivialize this passage and they say, oh, so your God got angry because someone ate some fruit? This is so much bigger than that. This is treason. This is treason against the Most High God. The true king, God, gave a command, just one command, and man broke it. God had been infinitely kind to make a covenant with Adam and promise him eternal life upon perpetual obedience, and Adam spat in the face of God and decided to obey the serpent instead of his maker. God had given him much more than he needed to live. He had given him a perfect garden with many trees with delicious fruit to eat. And that was not enough for Adam. God had given him dominion over everything and kept only one thing back from him. And that was not good enough for Adam. I'll see it for what it is. Adam refused to believe God's promise. He refused to believe God's threat of death. He refused to believe God's goodness and faithfulness and authority. When Adam ate the fruit, he effectively called God a wicked liar who had no right over him. This is much more than eating, brothers and sisters. This is wickedness. This is treason. This is hostility toward God. This is rebellion. This is sin. And really, before you get too self-righteous toward Adam, this is what all sin is. All of it is this. And God forgive us. But Adam sinned. He believed the lie of the devil. He bowed down to the serpent instead of crushing him by faith in God. He gave up his throne as the earthly king. He failed his posterity. He broke the covenant. And contrary to what the serpent had said, God indeed kept his promise to curse. Now we come to the results of the fall. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate peace on earth, right? You see it everywhere. Peace on earth. Why do we celebrate that so much? It's because by the sin of Adam, peace was removed from the earth and all its inhabitants. The curse of Genesis 2.17 has come upon mankind. The curse of death has come. The wrath of God has come. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.12, hear this carefully. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin and death came into the world through Adam. That's who Paul's referring to here. Through one man, sin and death came into the world. Sin and death spread to all men who came from Adam. Because catch this, he said all sinned. Well, I wasn't there, were you? What does he mean? In Adam we sinned. Because Adam was our federal head, we sinned in him. He represented us and failed and became a damnable sinner. And so because we come from him, because he represented us, we share in his nature. And we also share in his curse. He is our first father, and in him we share his guilt, his sin, and his sinful nature. It is not a stretch to say that Adam's covenant-breaking killed and damned all mankind. 
Now, some people may say, and I've heard many people say this, even professing Christians, but I didn't ask for Adam to represent me. I didn't consent to this. Well, God didn't ask you, did he? He didn't ask you. He is not in the business of asking for permission from anyone. He is God. And so as God, he appointed one man, Adam, to represent all of us in the covenant of works. Furthermore, and I say this with warmth, you will like federal headship. Just wait. Just wait for a new head and a new covenant will come. And all who are in the new head will be saved from the curse of the first covenant. If you like the second one, you've got to accept the first one. Adam's sin brought sin to all men, for all sinned in Adam. We are now born into sin, born sinners with hearts bent away from God. We are born enemies of God and under his wrath. We are born hostile to God and enslaved to sin. We are born, oh hear me, we are born under a broken covenant. We are born under the curse of death and hell. And we see some of this borne out actually in the text. In the text of Genesis 3, alienation from God now exists. We read in verses 8 through 10 of how Adam and Eve attempted to hide themselves from God, which is kind of funny to think about. We hid behind some trees from the omnipresent, omniscient God of everything. What does that show? They're no longer friends. You don't hide from your friends. There's alienation. God has not changed. God is still holy, but they have become unholy. God is still righteous, but they have become sinners. There is now a separation between them, and they know it. There is now a fear of judgment in mankind. In verse 10, God says, where are you? Adam said, I hid. Why? Because I was afraid. Afraid of who? Afraid of God. Adam, oh, and this is not respect, uh, sun-like fear, he says, I was afraid. Adam always had the fear of a son prior to his sin. But now he has the fear of judgment, the fear of divine vengeance. There, there is also now a recognition of nakedness. Nakedness in scripture is a, a symbol of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame belong to mankind now. How do we know this? Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both in the garden, naked and unashamed. But now they are naked and ashamed and hiding. They have guilt now. There is now distance from God, a separation from him. And I believe this is symbolized in the fig leaves that they used to cover themselves. Hear, hear me out. There was once literally nothing separating man from God. But now there is something literally separating their naked bodies from the presence of God. There is now a barrier between man and God the fig leaves. And why is that barrier there? Sin. Sin is the reason the barrier exists. And man must now be cast away from the presence of God. You can read at the end of Genesis 3, God drove out the man from the Garden of Eden. Damnation, eternal separation from the blessing of God's immediate presence belongs to mankind. And death must now occur for us. As the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. Death happens. Personal sins now happen. The nature of man has been changed since the fall. 
we are now conceived and born as sinners. And this, our sinful nature, is what leads us to commit all of our personal and actual sins. We are born guilty under Adam's broken covenant, but then we grow up to commit sins ourselves and we compound wrath upon wrath upon wrath because our hearts are bent away from God. And hell awaits all of us. Under this broken covenant, hell awaits all. In Adam, all stand condemned for his sins and their own sins to top it all off. Hear me, every misery, every misery we have ever seen in the world or will ever see stems from Adam's breaking the covenant of works in the garden. On that day, we were all plunged into ruin. As Charles Spurgeon said, they had struck a match and set the world on fire with sin. Merry Christmas. This is a situation that we're in. A sinful representative before God, a broken covenant, born sinners, inherited guilt, personal sin compounded upon it, death and damnation now belong to us, and none of us can renew the covenant of works with God. That was a one-time deal. God alone can impose covenants on man. We cannot impose covenants upon him. And so, left on our own, we are hopeless, helpless, worthless, dead, and damned. Are you ready for good news? Are you ready now to hear what God has done? God could have left mankind to suffer these curses with no hope, but he did not. No sooner had man fallen into sin did God then make a promise of hope? After confronting the man and the woman in the garden, God began to give out curses. And he began with the serpent. And in his curse toward the serpent, we see our hope. I'll read verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our focus is on verse 15, for there our hope lies. The gospel is preached here in seed form. There are not many details, but there is a promise of hope for sinners that we see more clearly in light of further scripture. God says there will be enmity between the offspring or seed of the serpent and the seed or offspring of the woman. Now, this verse has some broad, uh, a broad understanding to it. It has reference to God's children and the devil's children engaged in a history-long struggle against one another. John makes reference to this in 1 John. But this verse finds its ultimate reference in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. Notice the language at the end of verse 15. He, he, he shall bruise your head. Oh, there's going to be two lines. A line of the righteous and a line of the wicked. But it will all culminate in one he who will crush the serpent. 
God promised that one day at some point in the future, a man would be born of woman, a descendant of Eve. And this seed will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. What does this mean? Oh, there are many specific things we can say, but if nothing else, it means one day, one man would come to set things right. And this promised seed will indeed be born of a woman, won't he? Not of a man. Not of a man. No, he will have no earthly father. He will be born of a virgin, a descendant of Eve. Here the virgin birth of the God-man is hinted at. It's not explicitly said here. You'd be a fool to say it's explicitly said, but it's hinted at in Scripture. The serpent crusher will be born of a woman. And this seed will defeat the serpent. He'll do what Adam should have done. A second Adam, the last Adam, will be born into the world. He will be born of a woman, that is, be truly human like Adam. He will be a true human like us who will undo the curse for human beings. A new federal head will come. There will be a new representative before God who will perfectly obey God, perfectly keep covenant with God, and will overcome the temptation of the serpent. Oh, and we can read about how he overcame the temptation of the serpent. Not in a garden, but in the wilderness. And this means that a new covenant will be made. A covenant that will save sinners from the covenant that the first Adam broke. A covenant of grace, praise God, and not of works. Grace for those who receive the federal head by faith. Works because the federal head will work the covenant and keep it. There will be salvation for all who come under the headship of this promised seed. Everything will ride on the new Adam's obedience. But catch in verse 15, this one will be victorious, for he will crush the serpent. This one will save us from the curse. Brothers and sisters, this one is Jesus Christ. Born of a woman, the true son of God. Jesus is the seed of Eve. He is the promised one. He came into the world, took on flesh, and was born in order to save us from the curse of the broken covenant in Adam. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. He came to conquer Satan by overcoming his temptations and remaining faithful to God for all who will enter his new covenant by faith. Oh, but it will come at a price, will it not? It will come at a price. The serpent crusher will have his heel bruised. He'll have his heel bruised by the serpent. What does that mean? He will be hurt. The serpent will bite him. He is truly human. He will die. Here is the first reference to the cross. By the devices of Satan, the Son of God will be crucified and die. The serpent will indeed strike his heel. But it will only be a temporary death, mind you. For he will rise from the grave. And in the striking of the serpent, I love this. In the striking of the serpent, in the death of the promised one, the serpent gets crushed. <laughs> the serpent will be undone by the death of the promised seed. The Lord Jesus would come. This is promised here. The Messiah, the Redeemer, will come. And he will conquer sin, Satan, and death. He will reverse the curse by going to a cross to make atonement for sinners. He will reverse the curse by bearing the curse on the tree in place of all those who will believe on him. 
And in doing so, he will institute that new covenant, offering salvation from what? From the first covenant for all who will believe on him. And by all this, let's think about how this pans out now. The kingdom of the seed will tread down the kingdom of the serpent. The seed of the woman will overthrow Satan's lies and bring more and more sons of Adam to become sons of glory, sons of God. And one day, the promised seed will once and for all send the serpent to the lake of fire to be tortured day and night forever and ever. The promised seed will utterly crush the head of the serpent. Brothers and sisters, no sooner had man broken the covenant of works than God promised salvation through Jesus Christ. Behold our merciful God. Behold the promise of our Savior. Behold the hope for sinners, the seed of the woman who will set all things right. I hope Christmas is becoming clearer to you. Oh, it's not sentiment. It's not mere sentiment about a, a baby in a manger. No, it's, it's so much more than that. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of the serpent crusher. We are celebrating God has kept his promise to send a savior. We are celebrating, as we will sing later, that a true and better Adam has come. We are celebrating that the curse has been reversed for all who will believe on Christ. And one day, the curse will be purged entirely from the world. As the great Christmas hymn says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Brothers and sisters, the first Adam ate of a tree and condemned us all. But the last Adam took on flesh to be hanged from a tree to redeem us from the curse. The first Adam rebelled and damned us, but the last Adam obeyed and saved us. The first Adam bowed down to the serpent, but the last Adam crushed the head of the serpent. The first Adam, the sinner, failed, but the last Adam, the Savior, is victorious. At Christmas, we are celebrating that he has done it. We are celebrating that a baby was born to save us from our sins. That the God-man has come, the seed of the woman has come to redeem us. And brothers and sisters, he has done it. Hebrews 2.14, I love this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we have flesh and blood, we're humans. He himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death, getting his heel struck, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The serpent was crushed at the cross. And now we, may, we await the consummation of that crushing. Or as John says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He has done it. The seed has come. He has been born. He has lived and died and was raised. And the serpent has been crushed under his feet. God has done it. He is faithful. And we who believe are saved. And so I command you this morning with all the authority of the word of God. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel has come. He saved us. The seed has come. He accomplished his mission. 
There is a new covenant, a new creation, and eternal life for all who believe on Jesus Christ. You who love and trust him, rejoice. Celebrate him this season. Celebrate him always. He has done it. But if you're here and you do not yet know him, take the words of this sermon to heart. Take them to heart. You are in Adam and under a broken covenant. But even today, even today, the Lord Jesus holds out his nail-pierced hands and offers you himself as your representative before God. And God promises to take away your sin for Christ's sake, put you under his headship, and judge you according to his perfect covenant keeping. Today, God offers you salvation if you will only trust in the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ. Believe that God has done it and that he has done it for you and he will save you from your sins. May God grant all of us to see Christ, to trust him, to cherish him, and to rejoice that he has come and in him we are saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you for the word that is glorious. It is balm to our souls. It shows us our wickedness. It shows us our need. And then in grace upon grace, it shows us Jesus Christ who has met every single need. God, I know not everyone in this room is a believer. I pray that you would grant repentance and faith in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, to any who do not trust in him. Oh God, have mercy. And for those of us who do love and trust him, oh God, grant us that we would rejoice from this time forth and forevermore that he has done what we could never do for ourselves. He has saved us. We thank you for Christ, and we pray this all in his name and for his sake. Amen.